Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. With a problem as big as fentanyl addiction or homelessness, it can be easy to lose sight of the humanity in each and every human person living on the streets. They've got siblings, loved ones, parents. Parents who've had to decide how to cope with what's happened to their children. Lori Steves is one of them. Jessica is um, addicted to fentanyl and living on the streets in San Francisco. In a recent Chronicle feature, Steves documented the painful search she undertook to find her daughter and try to get her off those streets. I'm not sure what I'm up against, but I just hope that she's tired enough and that she's ready. After this news, we'll find out how it went. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Last May... Lori Steves packed up her stuff in a Seattle suburb and drove down to San Francisco in a bid to reconnect with her daughter, Jessica, who she hadn't seen for nine years. By her side in the car, she carried her son's ashes. He died from a drug overdose. Here's what she knew. Jessica was living on the streets of the Tenderloin, addicted to fentanyl. Beyond that, she'd have to figure it out. And in doing so, she'd enter a dark world that exists right alongside the multi-million dollar homes and artisanal world of the city a place where human pain and misery are concentrated and amplified. Her daughter might not be ready to leave life on the streets, but Lori had to try. Thanks for coming on, Lori. Can you tell us what you were hoping to do packing up and moving to San Francisco to look for your daughter? um, I was hoping to get her out of that life. Um, to get her treatment for her addiction and hopefully get her away from San Francisco. She had Mm -hmm. tried to get clean previously and had never really left the tenderloin for long. So you were hoping that she'd come back with you in the car and and head back up to Seattle? Mm, Perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. what had your relationship been like with your daughter before you lost contact with her? Um, it, it was touchy. Um, she had, at a young age, just been very independent. Um, was, um, uh, she and I didn't get along great. Um, she didn't, mm-hmm like to spend too much time with me we did you know holidays and weekends and um family gatherings and things but um 
she preferred to spend time with her friends uh, that she had made when she was living at her dad's house. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, she had uh, step siblings there as well. And, um, you know, a whole other life aside from her life at home with us. Yeah. Um, Did you worry that she was heading into trouble with drugs or things like that? I did. I did. Um, she had started, um, she had got caught drinking in middle school. Um, and um, it, it actually took um, some pleading to the courts to get um, treatment for her, um, for her drug and alcohol abuse and her depression. Um, mm. She's been suffering depression since about age nine. Oh, wow. And uh, uh, dad wouldn't consent to treatment. Um, it was a joint custody situation. And mm-hmm. it, it actually took taking it to court to get consent for treatment. Wow. Uh, but at that point, Jessica was, you know, not wanting to go. She went a couple times and um, didn't like her diagnoses and stopped going. And yeah. And I started self-medicating. Yeah. Do you remember after you drove down, do you remember your first glimpse of the Tenderloin when you went there looking for your daughter? Uh, I do. Um, I had I had already, I had had a glimpse um, a few weeks prior. I was there in late April uh, for the first time just for two days. Um, I flew down. Um, having just, uh, the only information I had was a a possible street corner that Jessica frequented. And, um, that was all the information I had. It was the the most information I had had in nine years as far as how to reach her. So, uh, armed with that, I flew down there and tried to find her. Um, and... (laughs) Um, unfortunately, that same day, she had become housed the day that I arrived in San Francisco looking for her. So um, she claimed she was no longer on the street mm-hmm. those two days that I was there. Um, so that's why I didn't find her. So but you I would just her. go drive around, though, looking for her? I would. Mm-hmm. Drove around, parked, walked around. Um yeah, I, I did a lot of that. Yeah. Were you able to get any help from anyone? Um, I did. I, I, ha- I got a lot of help from um, a friend of Jessica's, Adam Mesnick. He's a local business owner um, in Soma. And um, he knows Jess pretty well and um, has, um, he was the one that put me in touch with her. I had posted some, uh, missing flyers when I was there in April. And um, when I returned to Washington, Adam contacted me and told me he knew Jessica, he knew where she was, or essentially, you know, the area where he could find her. And he would set out on his next day off, which was the following day, to find her and um, put her in touch with me. And he did. He, mm. he went and... He walked through the Tenderloin and he found her and brought her back to his deli and put her on the phone to me. 
Um, and it was the first um, phone conversation I had had with her in years. And, what, uh, what was it like to reconnect with her? Oh, it was good. Um, she was a, a lot more receptive than I thought she would be. Um, so that was good. Um, she basically wanted to assure me that she was fine and everything was good. And, um, you know, um, I didn't need to worry about her, um, which I knew, you know, most of that was not true. Mm -hmm. um, I, I knew enough about her life there to know that that wasn't true. Um, but um, in, in talking to Adam and getting to know a little bit more about um, where Jessica was in, in her addiction, um, I just, I, I had been scheduled to move to Florida to be near my other daughter and finding out where Jess was and what she was up to, it just had me do a complete 180 with my plans. I put off moving to Florida. I put my things in storage and I packed up my car and um, moved to San Francisco to help Jessica. I couldn't leave the West Coast without at least trying um, to save her. I, I, I couldn't, couldn't lose another kid. So as you, after you move down, you start going to the Tenderloin. And as I understand it, it was quite difficult to connect with her. But eventually you were actually able to see her in person and begin to try to convince her to get help. Yes. Yes, I was. Um, it was good to finally see her in person. Um, there was a brief period where she was um, willing to try and get some help, um, but she she was different every time I saw her. Um, her moods were different. Her her um, her awareness was different. Um, some days she was just super lucid and. Um, could carry on conversations and was great. Other days she was really um, just not making sense and um, paranoid. And, um, you know, I guess it really depended on, you know, where she was in her youth, you know, how mm. much she used, what her, her state of consciousness was. Um, it was just, it was always different with her. Yeah. And uh, for a brief time, she was willing to accept help and then turned on that idea shortly thereafter. Yeah. And we have a short clip of Jessica so people can hear her voice that's from the San Francisco Chronicle video that was made about your story. Let's listen in. Mm -hmm. There's days, there's good days. Just like anywhere else, just like anybody who lives any other way. Not everyone is living a perfect day every day. Like, why does there have to be something big that I need to want for my life? Why can't I just live it how it is? Mm. Listening into that, I imagine it must have been extremely frustrating trying to describe how her life was, in fact, kind of different from other people's lives. 
Yeah. Um, I had a similar conversation with Jessica where she told me basically the same thing. I had been, um, we were hanging out with Jessica one day when she was um, still willing to go start methadone treatment. Um, this day in particular, her, the thing she was hung up on was getting her ID and she was halfway through the process of getting a new ID card. And um, it, it's, it's a long story, but we, mm -hmm. we spent a lot of time together that day, uh, she and I and, uh, and Gabrielle and Heather. Um, from the Chronicle, yeah. From the Chronicle, yes. Um, and she um, was listening to a conversation between Gabrielle and I about my new job and how much better it was going to be and closer to me being able to pay, make my rent. And um, Jessica was just like, her response to that was, why would you even do that? What You came here. If you have nothing, do what I do. Live in a hotel and they'll give you three meals a day and pay your rent and you don't have to work. You don't have to do anything. And I said, do you not realize there's something wrong with what you just suggested to me? She's like, what's wrong with it? She's like, you're just too uptight to do it mm. or something to that effect. You know, it's like it was unconscionable to her that I wouldn't just jump on board with the program yeah. she was in and and um Lori, we're gonna come back from a break in just a sec we're talking with Lori the steves the mother of jessica who's addicted to fentanyl in san francisco we'll be back with more after the break Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Lori Steves, who was profiled in the San Francisco Chronicle uh, for her story, trying to find her daughter on the streets of San Francisco. I want to add the journalists who did that work into the conversation. We're joined by Heather Knight, a columnist at the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome, Heather. Thanks for having me. And Gabrielle Lurie, a staff photographer at the paper, and they work together to produce a story. Welcome, Gabrielle. Thank you. Uh, 
So how did this collaboration come about, Heather? How did you end up becoming part of Lori's story? I've known Adam Mesnick, the owner of the Deli Board, for years, and he, as Lori said, um, was in touch with her. And when she told him that she was going to move to San Francisco to try to find Jessica, he suggested to her that she reach out to me and maybe this could be a story that others could learn from and relate to. And so I got an email from Lori in April before her move um, saying, introducing who she was and explaining that she'd already lost one child, Zachary, to um, a drug overdose and that she was desperate to save Jessica, who was homeless and addicted to fentanyl in the tenderloin, and she was interested in connecting with us. And then I love um, Gabrielle's work and brought her into the project. And we spent, um, the three of us spent a lot of time together over the next mm-hmm. several months. Yeah. You know, Gabrielle, um, you spent a lot of time in the tenderloin as well, shooting photographs and, and video. Um, how did that go? <laughs> I, um, I imagine people who are you know, using drugs on the street probably don't like to have their photos taken very often. Yeah, the pandemic has really made it um, even worse in the tenderloin and the drug use, I think, has has skyrocketed. The violence um, is palpable and it's quite difficult. Um, (laughs) You know, uh, I would keep my camera kind of hidden under my coat. I would really photograph only in key moments and moments um, that I felt like I couldn't miss. And I was hassled quite a bit and um, very close to being robbed. Actually, Jessica's uh, boyfriend saved me from from being robbed. So it's um, it's it's a little bit scary out there. You just have to be very careful. Well, and I also know that you two ended up also searching for Jessica a lot, um, both along with her mother as well as on your own, just to, to do this story. What did you learn about sort of navigating the tenderloin through that? Yeah, I'd never had a, a source who um, has no phone and no calendar and doesn't keep a schedule and you cannot make appointments with them or set anything up. So it was always a matter of just searching the tenderloin And I think Gabrielle and I learned that um, you just have to understand um, where Jessica usually hangs out, the most likely places you could spot her and get to know her boyfriend and others who know her um, ask around. And it's just a matter of of looking, looking, looking. Sometimes we would, it would work and sometimes it wouldn't. Yeah. I spent sometimes six or eight hours just trying to find her and then she would just show up. So it it just, you never knew what would happen. Mm -hmm. Lori, what was it like as you struggled to reach your daughter through the drugs and the lifestyle to have other people there documenting it? Like, was it hard or did they it help to have these people who were there alongside you? Um, in, in an odd way, it was comforting knowing that somebody was nearby. Um, it was awkward knowing that I was being filmed and photographed Um, but I had to just keep reminding myself that this was all for hopefully a good cause this was an attempt to help her Um, and if if not her if it helps anyone Mm -hmm. if it helps one other person get out of there then it's helped. 
but my ultimate goal is to help my daughter, of course. Yeah. Um, as, as time went on, Lori, and you're working in, you mentioned you'd gotten a job in, uh, in San Francisco and you're living in Bayview. Did you start to realize that your daughter was not going to accept your help, that there wasn't going to be a kind of storybook ending? Yeah. Um, as the summer went on and the more time I spent with Jessica, um, and then the, the less time I spent with her because she became rather elusive. Um, I, I know there were times where she just didn't want to be found and, um, and she wasn't, and um, she, she knew how to lay low. Um, and she's always on the move, just always. She's, she was really quick. Um, but I knew, you know, when I, I was just being rejected by her, um, any help um, that I, I tried to give her mm-hmm. w- was pushed away and rejected again. And this is, you know, this had happened previous times in her life. Um, so I thought what I'm doing here, walking the streets every day and um, my bills mounting and not being able to really survive in San Francisco, I thought I could go home and do almost the same thing. I can keep tabs on her. Um, and I'll be two hours away. There's you know several flights a day from Seattle to San Francisco. And, um, she had gotten injured last month and um, I saw that she was on crutches and not getting around real great. And um, I had some time uh, that I could take to go down there for a few days and I went down to try and find her, but I spent one afternoon, um, a brief amount of time with her. Um, or actually it was the morning when I first arrived. And she let me know she didn't want to spend time with me. I, she didn't want to hear anything. She didn't want to go anywhere. She didn't want to do anything. Um, she didn't want to discuss anything. And it was just a bad time. She was like, sorry, mom, but it's just your timing is bad. Mm. And for the next two days, I looked for her and I couldn't find her anywhere. We spent several hours out with her boyfriend one evening. Um, Gabrielle and I went out looking for her and um, we couldn't find her for hours and he knew all of her places that she hung out and we tried everywhere and Mm. um, no dice. Yeah. Yeah. You know, after the story came out, Adam Mesnick, who we've mentioned a couple of times, who owns the deli board at South of Market District and, and knows Jessica, he posted a short video of her reacting to the Chronicle story and video, um, and I just want to listen into it. Yeah. It was good. I could see why it sparked a tear in people, and uh, definitely the one reaction I got from Mexican fence of mine, somebody I sell, stole merchandise to, he um, said he showed his mom and his cousin, which I know as well, said uh, it made him cry a little bit, and if anything, it informed him 
And if that's all it could do for anybody was inform them and make them see things through that light, then that's all it needed. You know, Lori, it's kind of heartbreaking because you can <laughs> see that she can see how heartbreaking this is, but it's almost as if it's not her own story. Um, yeah. Um, she, she seems a little disconnected, um, from it, but, um, it, like it, I don't know. She also seems kind of all business about it. Um, but she has had some good things to say about, about, um, you know, I also saw her reaction to reading it in the paper and, um, she was upset that a couple of facts weren't exactly a hundred percent, um, and and they were it, that was my doing. It was facts I didn't have straight, but um, <clears throat> her reaction was fairly positive. She thought it was it was well written. It was well done, um, other than getting a couple things wrong. Yeah. And again, she said she just hoped that it educated people, that it gave them knowledge. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Heather Knight, I mean, you clearly see this story as telling us something bigger about the nature of the policies that the city of San Francisco has adopted in the Tenderloin. What, what's the lesson that you kind of draw there? Um, I mostly wanted to do this project because I think we hear the data so often. There were 712 people who died of overdoses last year and approaching the same number this year. And we know there's more than 8,000 homeless people in San Francisco, nearly half of whom who struggle with addiction. And we just don't see what this does to individuals and their families very often. And I think the story just reminds us that, you know, there's thousands of stories like this happening on the streets of San Francisco every day. And um, clearly San Francisco's approach could be a lot stronger and help a lot more people. Yeah. Uh, we don't want to keep you all uh, forever. This has been uh, really powerful to hear you, Lori. And I know that it's taken a lot of courage to tell the story, to open up in this way. Um, and thank you so, so much, Lori, for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. And Heather Knight and Gabrielle Lurie, columnist and staff photographer with the San Francisco Chronicle, thank you for this work. I mean, this is a, a really intense and monumentally difficult piece of journalism. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Does Lori's story resonate with you? Perhaps you'd like to share your experience trying to reconnect with family uh, who have, have, are suffering with drug addiction. Uh, give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter, on Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email your, your questions or your story to forum at kqed.org. Uh, I mean, we are entering the holiday season, which can be a particularly painful time for those wanting to connect with a loved one struggling with mental health problems or who's homeless or addicted to drugs. So we want to add into our conversation here Fumi Mitsuishi. She's the clinical professor at UCSF's Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, as well as director of UCSF's Division of Citywide Case Management. Welcome to the show, doctor. Hi, thank you for having me. So I'm just wondering if maybe you could reflect on Jessica's story and, and how it re reflects or doesn't reflect the kind of um, 
issues that you run into all the time? Yeah, I mean, you know, as a parent myself and as a member of this community and as somebody who provides care and directs a clinic that provides this type of care for um, folks who experience serious mental illness, houselessness, and all the many social challenges that people experience on the streets. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just simply gut-wrenching to hear um, that perspective and it's something that we do see often um a lot of our i'm I'm gonna call my the folks that we work with clients even though Mm -hmm. that has a you know there's there's question yeah you know to see um i i mean it's it is it's just a very gut-wrenching story and such a reminder of our common humanity i think um as a matter of fact in terms of my sort of empathic practice and something that I try to teach uh, anybody that I teach um, at UCSF, I think it's really important for us practitioners to always see everybody that we work with as a child, somebody's child, somebody who Mm -hmm. used to be a child Mm -hmm. and somebody who has a parent maybe, or at least some kind of a parental figure somewhere who might be looking for them. Yeah, yeah. And so that's a centering point for all of us. and I think it's a centering point for all of us in this community. Uh, for every person that you encounter on the street, that is the practice that we need to have. Mm. Um, so I, I know I'm meandering a bit. No, 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 no. I I, I, I think appreciate it's it. so yeah. important. Uh, it's an important piece as a reminder of our humanity. Yeah. Yeah. So you're a psychiatrist working with at-risk populations and you know really hundreds of people. Um, in San Francisco, for a parent who's in Lori Steve's situation, like, do you have advice? Is there is there general advice possible on how to approach someone who's addicted to drugs and, and living on the street? Yeah, I, I think it starts with self-reflection. It's uh, being a parent is complex. Being a child is complex. Being a human being is complicated uh, to that. Um, having a child with substance use disorders and uh, mental illness potentially who's experienced homelessness, it it just really adds a ton to this complicated picture of already being a child and a parent and part of this dynamic of, you know, uh, families, right? Uh, And I think all of us who are facing the holidays right now are thinking about families. Families are just simply complicated, right? So, as we approach um, perhaps uh, a journey of trying to find our child in the tenderloin, I think it's really important to think, what is my purpose? And what might I encounter in the process? This is hard to do because you may not be able to imagine what it's like, right? But I think at least within oneself to really think, um, what would I do with disappointment? Uh, what, What is the success for me? Does that success is the same thing as the success for my child? Mm-hmm. What are their what is potentially their perspective in all this? Uh, I think that too often, and this happens very naturally because we see so much suffering for folks that we encounter on the streets, is that we tend to problematize it in a in a very in a false dichotomy. That is that uh, they are the patient, they are the problem, and we are the solution. 
And there's a lot more to it than that. It's very complicated. People come from complex families. Mm -hmm. People carry intergenerational trauma. Mm -hmm. People carry all kinds of stories and histories with them that ultimately leads to the picture that you see. Add to that systemic factors, which are incredibly powerful and lead to what we see. Mm -hmm. and, um, and also in the case of psychiatric illness, I would say that um, it, there is a problem sometimes of insight. We as a society expect that people need to direct their care as an individual, that they have the right to decide what happens to them. And that makes a ton of sense. But sometimes with psychiatric illness, people may not have that insight, or at least from our external perspective, it is there's an insight problem. Right. And by that, so, you mean that they can't see their situation clearly or in terms that the rest of the world would understand as reality. I, I think I, I like the second way you phrased that. Um, yeah, exactly. That their reality doesn't match our reality. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, they have the right to decide. So uh, there are very few tools that we have as a practitioner community, as a parental community, as a society, ultimately, to direct what the individual decides to do or not. Yeah. And that is very difficult. It's a problem that we are, we really need to figure out how to solve as a society. Um, we're, yeah, we're talking about how to connect with a loved one struggling with mental health problems, homelessness, or drug addiction. Joining us is Dr. Fumi Mitsuishi. She's Associate Clinical Professor at UCSF's Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences and Director of UCSF's Division of Citywide Case Management. Earlier, we heard Lori Steve's powerful story as profiled in The Chronicle about her search to connect with her daughter in the Tenderloin. Would you like to share your experience trying to reconnect with families struggling with addiction? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your story to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about how to connect with a loved one struggling with mental health problems, homelessness, or drug addiction. Joining us is Dr. Fumi Mitsuishi. She's a psychiatrist working with at-risk populations with mental health and substance abuse issues here in the city. We wanted to add in caller Kevin from Novato. Welcome to the show. 
Hi, thanks for taking my call, Alexis, uh, or everyone at Forum. Um, I, I'm, I was in recovery for 20 years. I was an opiate addict. I was addicted to heroin in the late 90s. Um, and I relate to this girl. You know, I was living in Santa Cruz in my van. Um, and what I am is a survivor of trauma. Mm-hmm. And everyone on the street that you drive by, I think most likely is a survivor of trauma. And when you're in your car and you see these folks and you're wondering how they get there, think of your own trauma and start to have compassion and realize that those folks are just people on the street who have not had their trauma acknowledged and held and worked with. And a person on the street has community. Mm. They have purpose. Okay? You have community and purpose. You are there with the other folks who are also survivors of trauma, who are bootstrapping. Americans, you hear me? They're bootstrapping. And we're all out there together. And some of us are going to mess each other over. But... When you have that community and that purpose, you're an American. Hey, Kevin, how did you uh, how did you get out? How did you end up getting into recovery? How did I get out? You know, it became more work. You know what? It became more work than it was worth. And I used opiates so I could be a part of society. I used opiates so I could look people in the eye. And it didn't work, right? It just, it was too much work. I was on an early program for buprenorphine. Mm. Um, like in the early days, and that helped me like keep a job and do all the stuff that I needed to do. Um, but I found some heroin wrapped up in a dollar bill one day uh, on the street. And since I was in AA and I was believing that things were like, you know, messages from God or whatnot, I was like, better do this. Mm. And I was off again. And um, I did eventually get back in when friends, I think a friend of mine showed up at my house. So I was housed Mm -hmm. and that helped me get sober. Because if I was on the street, I would have had, I don't know. I I was housed. A friend of mine came over and said, Hey, um, I'm worried about you. And for whatever reason, it wasn't my parent. Okay. And when a parent comes up and says, I'm worried about you, they are bringing your whole lifetime of reactive trauma with them. Right. Mm -hmm. They're coming up and like talking to you about whatnot and whatnot. And all I'm thinking about if my parent is there and I'm a 19 year old on heroin or whatnot is like how I'm going to have to take care of my parent, how their emotional pain is right there in front of me, and now I got another thing to take care of, Mm. right? But when my friend showed up, it was different, Yeah. right? My friend showed up, and I was like, oh, shit. Excuse my French, sorry. (laughs) Um, So. Yeah, Kevin, you know, thanks uh, so much for sharing the story. We got some other calls I want to get to. I just want to say, you know, I I hope – people are continuing to hold your trauma and that you can, can stay on the path. It's, I, and thank you so much for providing this perspective, which we really, really wanted to hear. I, 
you know, uh, Dr. Mitsuishi, I was really struck by the way that both Jessica and Kevin talked about community. Um, Jessica in the Chronicle piece and, and Kevin here on our lines. Is that something you really find in your work that that people that maybe to outsiders look isolated on the street, in fact, have a lot of relationships? Absolutely. And that's why I want to shift the, the word homelessness to houselessness. Mm-hmm. Because, in fact, folks have a home uh, in their community in the streets. And as a matter of fact, we find that when we house people, the first couple of months can be really rough because they actually lose their community Mm. uh, who's on the street. And that's a high risk period for folks who are um, housed uh, uh, or recently housed. So it's something to really keep in mind. Um, And uh, I I think in a way that those of us who are housed or who have um, uh, the privileges of income and so on and so forth, uh, are outsiders to the community that exists out on the streets. Um, and it kind of, what Kevin said makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. And I think the first path to helping folks in whatever way they want to be helped in that moment is to really understand that story, uh, where they come from, the, the trauma, the pain, that they are ultimately working on uh, to feel or not feel, to deal with in some manner, and the community that they have sought, that they have chosen. Um, and there is a tension between the family of origin and the chosen community. And that's really important to note here in this story. Yeah. yeah. I have a couple of listener comments that I'm going to read together and then I have a question for you, Doctor. Um, Barry writes, I encountered a young woman half naked having some kind of mental breakdown outside my house in Noe Valley. I called psych services and they said they did not come out at night. I called the neighborhood line for the homeless. The number said it was disconnected. Where is the $600 million we are spending on homelessness going? This is maddening and heartbreaking and horrible. Jerome writes, I had two siblings who died in their early 40s from drug abuse. The biggest regret all of us have had as a family is that we did not step up and get them professional help when it was critical, just as one would do with any disease. We were ashamed of their behavior, didn't want to hang out our dirty laundry for all the neighbors. Such shame is a definite contributor to drug abuse and death, which we also incurred shades of that um, with Kevin as well. What I want to ask you... Um, doctor, as someone who's working a lot in San Francisco, in the over the last couple of decades, San Francisco pioneered this harm reduction model, working you know with heroin and and methamphetamine and and crack and and trying to essentially put a little bubble around people of services that really could could help them. With fentanyl, so many people are dying. You know, more than like seven hundred people a year. The last couple of years, I mean, I'm sure you know the stats better than I do. Is, is the model that we have established, is it still working or do we need a more radical approach? Like the addiction may be the same, but the drug is different. Man, that's a tough question. Yeah, I think there is a tension between, I, I think it's a false tension, honestly. I, I Again, I, I'm, I keep pointing to these, what I'm calling false dichotomies, but this harm reduction there's versus um, uh, abstinence-based treatments, uh, those are tensions that we've created in our minds. Some people need one or the other, some people need both, and some people are not on a pathway from one to another Mm -hmm. and back and forth. I think they are just tools. 
and different mm-hmm. frameworks that we use to deal with a problem that's very complicated to deal with. And I don't think that just because fentanyl is a new drug that we need to radically change the way we do things. But honoring the fact that abstinence-based treatment does work for some folks is really important too. Um, so I don't know if that really answers your question, but well, that's kind of how I frame it. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I, you know, yeah. I, I guess it just feels like if so many more people are dying that it feels like there should be a radical change. Like, it feels like, why would we say, oh, deaths are up, like, what is it, like 10x? But we don't need to change that much. Like, that's, that honestly just doesn't make sense to me. And, I, and I'm not saying that the, your answer doesn't make sense. I'm saying the approach feels like something's got to change that's bigger than that. Why do we still think it's working? Okay, well, I think the solution is something a lot more radical than this, which is all the way upstream. Let's deal with racism. Mm. Let's deal with poverty. Mm-hmm. Let's undo traumas. How do we do this? Let's prevent illnesses from happening. Let's prevent addictions in the first place. It is not a matter of what we do downstream. And honestly, the work that we do at Citywide is really about undoing the things downstream that we wish we could have done years ago. It's about society transforming. It's about uh, wealth disparities and income distribution and really big things. Yeah. You know, the story that um, the story really struck me as why is it that a mother who's coming to San Francisco to save her daughter had such a hard time renting a, a place to live here and surviving in San Francisco because it's so expensive. And that is what's going on. So we can talk about abstinence, we can talk about fentanyl, we can talk about all these things, but ultimately we need to change our society. And maybe that's a bit bit of a cop out for me to say that, but I think that's true. No, I think that's right. I mean, I mean, that that strikes me as like kind of meeting the problem at the level where it is. Of course, that's like, you know, there's a there's a lot of difficult things about that. And I think people would just like you know, houseless people to go away a lot of the time in San Francisco. That's a lot of the sentiment that I that I see out there rather than to transform the society so that it stops generating a fountain of people who are living on the streets with tons of trauma and addicted to drugs. Like, I, I don't think that's too radical a solution. I just think, yeah, I, I hope that questioning how the harm reduction policies seem to be reducing harm is not seen as saying, let's just lock everybody up and tell them they can never use drugs again. I think there's got to be, as you're indicating, other structural things that can be done. And just hearing stories like Jessica's or even like Kevin's, I just think it, it is so, I'm sure it's the same thing happens for listeners. It's just, it's both heartbreaking and we feel helpless to do anything. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's incredibly heartbreaking to hear and honestly discouraging sometimes. Yeah. Um, but we got to do the work on the ground and we also go to go upstream. So those two things have to happen at the same time. Yeah. In your work in the city, is there something that the city, like that you as someone on the ground working with people every day, you say like these, these three things, even if they're on the smaller side and not on the structural side, these three things are broken and we need to fix these three things and it would make things better. <laughs> hmm. Well, okay, so essentially it's a combination of um, housing, uh, of um, sort of relationship-based 
services that do not let people drop between the silos. Mm. So it's a, it's a kind of a care management, uh, human-based, relationship-based, present for you, a team-based approach for many of the folks that we're talking about. And ultimately, a consideration of where the person's uh, needs are and where, uh, where they want to go. And so often we don't ask that question. So I think it's, it's really an individualized care uh, that really holds the person throughout these silos and, uh, in, you know, really good housing. Mm-hmm. I think those things are really important. Yeah, we heard that from Honestly, you know, <laughs> housing, housing is key. And I, 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 though I do see that there is some questions about what happened during the pandemic about housing folks and perhaps the story, uh, though I don't think it was necessarily critical about what the city did in terms of um, rapidly housing folks in hotels, I think that saved lives. Mm-hmm. Um, it really, really saved a lot of lives. And it was, in many ways, a dream come true. Yeah. Um, I, I, I had clients tell me, this is the first time I was able to take a bath in forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the criticism bed. was more or less that it those those housing programs didn't effectively connect people into treatment programs, right? That's kind of like been one of the major criticisms. Yeah, and I think this is this is um, and you know this is not just our system, but you know we operate our systems operate by packets of money that come in with specific uh, purposes. They're not connected to a larger vision mm-hmm. of a future path, right? Of how this larger system will change. I think that Mental Health SF is, is working on that and that there, San Francisco is working very hard to make yeah. that path more clear. But, you know, anything like that takes time and enormous amount of effort and dollars. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah. Doctor, I want to bring in one more call. Sarah from San Francisco. Welcome to the show. Hi, just thank you for all of these incredible stories and everything that you've just said, doctor, is just like so absolutely right on in terms of the story of what we experienced and recognized from our family. Um, just real quickly, our, our, our story was a success story of a parent coming from back east to San Francisco to find their child. And I'm keeping this all very general to protect the identity of this person mm-hmm. who was addicted to crack many years, couple de- two decades ago, three, two and a half decades ago. And um, it took about 48 hours for this person to be found. And this person suffered from intergenerational trauma, racism, other, you know, family traumas, et cetera. And um, was the one who just couldn't make, had a break and, and was turning to drugs as a, as a means of coping with all of this trauma. And it took a number of times in and out of, of recovery programs to slowly rebuild, just like anything like sports, like music, it's a practice. Um, mm-hmm. We call things a practice because it takes a while to to actually build the strength to recover um, from anything. And this person is now thriving um, and making a huge, running a program that makes a huge difference in life and will save so many lives. And but I, I wanted to share our story because when people see one person who is addicted to drugs in the Tenderloin or wherever, there is a whole family, and as Kevin said, a whole community of friends behind this person. And it's not that they don't care. 
it's that they do, but they also represent a lot of suffering because all of these, all of the friends and all of the family are also suffering. I had a hard time shopping for groceries when our person was disappeared and we couldn't find them. Um, and it's now, uh, what was I going to say? Yes, housing. The other thing that was a problem and it was difficult, and I recognize this, is that sometimes a person, when people are on that roller coaster and there are times when they want help, there are waiting lists to get mm-hmm. help. And there cannot be waiting lists. You have to catch some, but there has to be something available to somebody at that moment when they are ready. Yeah. Thank you and so much. So yeah, thank you so much, Sarah. You know, we had a, a listener comment, um, Dr. Mitsubishi, just asking, you know, I want to reconnect with an addicted friend. How do I do this knowing I may not be able to get her to stop taking drugs just in our last like 30 seconds? What's the first step? I think it's just approaching the person and approaching them as your friend without an agenda to try to uh, engage them in uh, changing their behaviors in the way that you wish they could change. Um, I think showing up in, with that presence, I think, would go a long, long way. And ultimately, will demonstrate to your friend the fact that you care, which is a deeply healing thing. Yeah. And so I, I thank you for trying that and for wishing to connect. I think that's super important. Uh, we, Kevin, do you mind if I put a plug in for something that I think is really important that the, our community needs to know about? Real quick, yeah. Yeah, the San Francisco DPH Assisted Outpatient Treatment Program is a way for families to to see if um, uh, the city could help with, specifically with uh, their family members who may not want to seek help or who have refused help up until this point. So I would say uh, reach out to San Francisco DPH Assisted Outpatient Treatment Programs. Yeah, thank um, you so much. Yeah. We've been talking about how to connect with a loved one struggling with mental health problems, houselessness, or drug addiction. We were joined by Dr. Fumi Mitsuishi, a psychiatrist working with at-risk populations through UCSF. We spoke earlier with Lori Steves, the mother of Jessica, who's addicted to fentanyl in San Francisco, as well as Gabrielle uh, Gabrielle Lurie and Heather Knight with the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you so much to them. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all 
all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.